to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Throughout Isaiah, throughout this section of the prophecy, generally speaking, these addresses, this is what the Lord says they're addressed to God's people. But here, this one is addressed to a pagan king, Cyrus, the ruler of Persia. And uh, God is addressing his word through Isaiah to him. Now you'll remember that this whole section of the prophecy is concerned with God's purpose to restore his people from their exile in Babylon. He is speaking to the people of Israel about the situation which still has to come when the people of God will be taken into exile in Babylon and then ultimately God in judgment will remember mercy and will bring them back again having purified them to rebuild Jerusalem and to establish his people again so that out of that line of the tribe of Judah there will come the anointed one, the Messiah himself. And that really is what the rest of uh, Isaiah is dealing with. Isaiah is describing how this salvation will be brought about. And it is a salvation which has been prefigured in the exodus out of Egypt and will be fulfilled ultimately not in the exodus out of Babylon, but in the redemption that God will accomplish in Christ. Now the whole point of this section of Isaiah 45 that we have read is that when God begins a work of salvation, that work is always a work of his sovereignty. It is a work of his grace in that there is nothing that the people of God deserve except judgment. That's manifest right through the whole of this part of Old Testament history. If God were simply giving to people in Israel what they deserved, it would be unrelieved judgment. But he is a God who delights, as we have seen again and again, in mercy. Judgment is his strange work. And therefore he comes to Babylon. He even pursues them to the place where they are experiencing the judgment of God. And he brings them back into Jerusalem and restores them. And the way he does it is a way that demonstrates above all things that God is sovereign in all his works. That he is the one from whom salvation flows. And the way he demonstrates that here at the beginning of chapter 45 is of course by showing us that God even uses pagan powers. People who do not know him, do not acknowledge him or worship him. Indeed, he is telling us at the beginning of chapter 45 that he will raise up 
and prosper someone who does not know him in order that others may come to know him. This is what the Lord says, verse 1, to his anointed. Now, you would immediately think that his anointed is someone who would prefigure the Lord Jesus Christ and would be someone from Israel, a specially favored servant of God. But the surprising thing is that God's anointed is Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia. And what Isaiah is demonstrating to us here as God teaches him is that God is not just the sovereign Lord of Israel. He is the sovereign Lord of the whole earth. And he is able to take up total pagans who are absolutely unaware of who God is and neither know him or acknowledge him and use them as instruments in his purposes. Now, that's something that we need to be aware of in our own contemporary history. There is a sense in which we are seeing God doing this kind of thing in the contemporary world. And we need to grasp this. It's a vital thing for Christians to read their newspaper and understand current events in the light of what Isaiah is saying here. That it is God who raises up people like Cyrus. And it is God who controls the direction of history. So when we see what has been happening, for example, in Eastern Europe, we need to grasp that it is God who is the sovereign Lord over the whole earth who is raising up and casting down. Notice how complete, for example, is God's control over Cyrus, this pagan ruler of Persia. In verse 1, we read that God takes him by the hand. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. Then he goes on to tell us that he subdues Cyrus's enemies. He subdues nations before him. He opens doors before him so that gates will not be shut. He goes before Cyrus, leveling the mountains, preparing the way, breaking down gates of bronze and cutting through bars of iron. He even prospers him. And makes him rich. Do you notice verse 3? I will give you, that is to Cyrus, treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places. Now, in the amazing and mysterious way in which God does his work, he even takes up people like Cyrus and appears to prosper them. He blesses them indeed in order that he might use them for the fulfillment of his purpose. And that's what Isaiah goes on to tell us halfway through verse 3. If we have to notice first how complete is God's control over Cyrus, the second thing Isaiah goes on to tell us 
is how clear is God's ultimate purpose in everything that he is doing. Notice verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places. Now you notice what this means. It means that God is actually prospering the ungodly. Now that's something that frequently when it happens in history, we find it an astonishing thing. This surprises us. God actually prospering the ungodly. But that's what he's doing here. Now why is he doing it? Halfway through verse 3. The first reason is that Cyrus might know that the Lord is the living God. So that you may know that I am the Lord. The God of Israel who summons you by name. So God has a purpose. Do you notice how this missionary element comes in Isaiah? God's purpose is not just to the fold of his own people. That's what they had frequently thought. They believed that God had an exclusive purpose for Israel. But here God is saying he has a heart that goes out to this pagan emperor of Persia and he is dealing with Cyrus so that you may know that I am the Lord. Now we're going to find that in, in an increasing measure just shortly in this same chapter but it's a very important thing for us to grasp that the God of the Old Testament is a missionary God not a tribal deity but a missionary God whose heart is for the whole earth. And this, of course, is why Jesus and Paul are so grieved with the people of their generation who had no heart for the Gentiles. I think, for example, that one of the reasons that Jesus was so angry about the defilement of the temple. Do you remember when he went in and cleansed the temple? He said, my father's house of prayer was to be a house of prayer, you remember, for all nations. What have you done with it? You have made it a den of thieves, he said. Now, what is Jesus rebuking them for? He said, my father's concern was for the nations, for the Gentiles. And here in the very place, because it was the court of the Gentiles that they were in, and here in that very place, they are absorbed with their own greed. That's the significance. Now, where did our Lord in his humanity learn that? The answer is he learned it in the Old Testament. Because the God of the Old Testament is a missionary God. And he says, I will give you the treasures of darkness so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel. Of course he is the God of Israel. And he has come in a special sense to the Jews. But I summon you by name. So his first purpose is that Cyrus might know that the Lord is truly God. The second purpose he has is that his plans for his own people 
may be fulfilled. Verse 4, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Now, do you notice that focus is upon his own people? And that's the second great focus that there is in Scripture. Everything that God is doing in history, all that he is doing in the world, it finds its ultimate focus upon his own people, that is, upon the church. Now, it's a glorious thing to see, as I remember reading in, in a, a, a South African Dutch Reformed uh, pastor's uh, book that he had written upon the church of Jesus Christ in a troubled age. And what he is saying is, that just as you will see throughout many parts of the world scaffolding up on great buildings where they are being prepared or renewed or built for the first time, you need to grasp that the real moment is going to come when the scaffolding is taken away and the thing that is being prepared for public display will finally appear. And what he says, I think quite beautifully, is that the whole of history is like the scaffolding round the church of Jesus Christ. And when history is brought to an end, and when time shall be no more, God is going to take the scaffolding down, as it were, and then people will see what God has really been building. And what he has been building is not the scaffolding. What he has been building is a people, a beautiful people for his glory. This is what God is saying through Isaiah. He says, for the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I'm doing all of this. Now, that is the whole point, you see, of everything that is happening in the world. It finds its focus on the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, everything else in history is disposable. Everything else in history will pass away. There is no question whatsoever about that. But the church of Jesus Christ will remain. I'm sure I've told you about uh, that uh, great moment when uh, one of God's great servants who stood in the BBC for so many years was its first director general stood before a company of the BBC smart young men and women and they were telling him they were going to have a program to describe the demise of the Church of Christ later on in this century. And they said, what we're going to do is prepare a program so that it will project into the future the idea of the total disappearance of the Church of Jesus Christ in Britain before the end of the 20th century, they said. People will have outgrown it and so on. And uh, Lord Reith 
said to one of the men, young man, he said, the church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC. Now the church of Jesus Christ will likewise stand at the grave of every other institution. The National Health Service which provides these bleeps for people like Ilona, everything else. And that's a tremendously important thing for us to grasp that the, there is nothing else that's permanent except the church of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean a denomination, of course. Denominations are disposable. I have no assurance that the Church of Scotland is going to last until the end of the 20th century. But the church of Jesus Christ, the ransomed people of God, they will outlive every other institution because God is ordering history that way. That's what the Bible teaches. And the third great purpose is that there might be a universal acknowledgement that the Lord is God and that there is no other. Verse 6, so that, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other apart from me, there is no God, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now, of course, that is Isaiah's way of saying what the Apostle Paul is saying as he looks into the future. He says, there is a day coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now he goes on to tell us in verse 7 that he is able to accomplish all this because he is the Lord who has created the universe. He is the Lord of history because he is the creator of the universe. Verse 7, I form the light and create darkness you notice the opposites that Isaiah is using as he describes this. He forms light and creates darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. So that whatever it is that we are seeing, we recognize God is the Lord who is the creator and the preserver of the world that we live in. Now again, let me just uh, say to you that um, the verse that ends, I the Lord do all these things, verse 7, is translated, I think I'm bound to say mistranslated in the authorized version, I make peace and create evil. Now that's been a very difficult verse for many people who have said, is this really teaching us that God creates evil? What it says in the NIV, you will notice, is I bring prosperity and create disaster. And what Isaiah is speaking about is not moral good and evil, which God is said to create, 
It's rather that he is able to raise up and to cast down, to create and to destroy, to bring blessing and to bring disaster upon people as he did in Egypt, for example. He brought disaster upon Pharaoh and God does that. He is as able to bring disaster upon people as blessing and this is one of the reasons that uh, the nations are taught in scripture to fear the Lord and not to treat him lightly because he is able to bring disaster as well as to bring blessing but he is not saying that God creates evil. God is not the author of evil. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And when we are thinking about the way God governs the world, he governs it, Scripture tells us, so as not to be the author of evil. And uh, although I don't want to begin to go into it this evening, it's an important thing when we are reading about God's sovereign control of history to recognize that God's sovereignty and human responsibility in Scripture are parallel truths. They are not alternatives. They are parallel truths, like two railway lines. And you need both of them, not just one. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty are parallel truths. We will not see where they meet in this world, but they are both taught in Scripture. And it's an important thing for us to grasp that. Now, the place where the sovereign purpose of God finds its climax is in the salvation that he plans. And that's the theme from verse 8. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the cloud shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation Spring up, let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Now there is God, the creator, speaking of his sovereign work in salvation. And it's a common theme we have found of Isaiah's, that the same God who sovereignly acts in creation to call the world into being, is the God who sovereignly acts in redemption to bring sinners to himself. And that's a glorious thing if you think of it, that we have to grasp this amazing fact that the same God who called the universe into being, who marshals the stars in their place, is the God who has come and taken me up and begun to work in my life to save me from my sin, to renew and restore me into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see, if I have a lesser vision of God than that, I would scarcely believe that he could do it. But when I grasp that this is the God who has taken hold of me, 
then there is nothing outside of the bounds of possibility for him. That's the glorious encouragement of a great view of God for poor, needy sinners like ourselves. There is nothing impossible for him because he's the creator of the ends of the earth. And the one thing you notice that he does, he calls for righteousness to come down from heaven. Rain down righteousness, you heavens, he says. Now, that is precisely because it's the one thing that sinners need. You remember how Paul develops this in Romans. It's really the great theme of the epistle to the Romans. Righteousness is what God peculiarly possesses. It is what he demands of his creatures. It is what they do not have. And it is what God gloriously provides in the gospel. So he calls on the heavens, rain down righteousness. And this is what is fulfilled in Jesus. He comes to give us a righteousness that is not our own, but his, in order that the wells of salvation may flow in our lives. So this is the sovereign Lord in salvation, which is like a new creation. I, the Lord, the end of verse 8, have created it. Now the last section we'll look at this evening deals with the question, what about the human understanding of this sovereignty of God and salvation? What about our human reaction to it? Well, Isaiah says in verse 9, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. That's a great word for us when we begin to say, I can't understand how God can possibly be sovereign in salvation and tell me it's all my work and yet say to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't understand how God says that he grants repentance to sinners. Now has God also granted repentance and yet he says, repent. Now, how can I understand all this? How can God be sovereign and still make me responsible? Well, Isaiah says, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Those of you who know Romans chapter 9 well will know that Paul quotes from Isaiah there on this very subject as a matter of fact. Um, do you notice in Romans 9, if you have that uh, particular passage? Verse 19 of Romans 9. One of you will say to me then, why does God still blame us? Why does he hold us responsible for who resists his will? But then you notice how he begins to quote from Isaiah 45. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? 
So what is formed, say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter of the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Well, now look back now at Isaiah 45. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Because Isaiah says men and women are in relation to God as three comparisons make clear to us. They are like pieces of pottery in relation to their maker. Now, you don't uh, find that this drives you into despair, but it does save you from foolish human pride about yourself. Listen to what Isaiah says. Men and women are like this in relation to God. They are like a piece of pottery in relation to its maker. So he says, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, verse 9, to him who is but a potsherd. A potsherd is just a broken piece of pottery among the potsherds on the ground. The second thing they're like is the clay to the potter. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Now, of course, this is part of Isaiah's um, humor. I'm sure he's got humor. He is saying, can you imagine the clay saying to the potter, what are you making? I take objection to what you're doing as you form me with your hands like that. The thing is so ludicrous, he says. He's poking fun at them, really. He says, how can the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Or does your work say, that is the, the clay that is your work that you're forming and molding. Does it say he has no hands? Now, that's a direct Old Testament expression that Scottish people know very well. I always remember my uh, dear old mother regularly saying to my father, uh, who would not mind me telling you this this evening, I'm sure, my, you're the most handless man I've ever come across. You know what a handless person is. You have no hands, he says. He has no hands. It's, it's exactly the same picture, you see. And yet people are saying this to God. My, they say, when they see what God is doing, you're handless. That's exactly what it is. He says, woe to him who quarrels with his maker. This is really serious, you know. And not only are we like a piece of potter with its maker and the clay in relation to the potter, but like a child to his parents. Woe to him, verse 10, who says to his father, What is this that you have begotten? Or to his mother, What have you brought to the birth? Because, of course, you see, the thing that each of these comparisons has in common is that they contribute nothing to what they have become. The clay is molded by the potter's hands, and the clay doesn't contribute to it. The child contributes nothing to its birth. It is the product of what the parent has produced. And here, Isaiah says, if this is what we are like, then we have to recognize how arrogant and foolish and dangerous it would be for us to quarrel with the one who is our maker. 
That's why we need to listen in the presence of God to the advice of Peter, who had cause to know a lot about this kind of folly, of objecting to the hand of God on his life. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. Now you will notice that it is not God's intention to crush you. It's not God's intention to crush your personality or anything else of the kind. He intends to exalt you, but the only safe way to be exalted is by God. Now that's a lesson that would save us endless trouble in our Christian lives. The only safe way to be exalted is to let God do it. Self-exaltation is one of the most dangerous and damaging things to anybody's life, whatever way you look at it. But God has a way of raising us up into a glory that neither the world can give us nor we could give ourselves. Now, if this is what we are like, Isaiah ends this section by telling us what the Lord is like. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Who am I? Well, first, he is the creator and governor of the universe. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. So he is the creator and governor of the universe. Secondly, he is the Lord of history. At the beginning of verse 13, I will raise up Cyrus himself. In my righteousness, I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city. And he is the Lord of history, not only in the days that they are moving into in their exile, but right through to the days of Christ. Just turn over for a little minute um, to see how the apostles work this out in Acts chapter 4 or if you can't be bothered getting to it let me read it to you the apostles are praying on, in Acts chapter 4 and do you notice how they confess God as the sovereign Lord of history and of redemption Verse 24, when they heard this, that is, when they reported to them the opposition that they had received from amongst the rulers, they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then in verse 27 of Acts 4, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant whom you anointed. Now here is God the sovereign Lord. They did. That's Herod and Pontius Pilate and all these other important people. They did what your power 
and your will had decided beforehand should happen. See that? Who was in charge at Calvary? There is no question about that. It was the sovereign Lord of creation and of history who is the Redeemer of his people. Notice how in the second half of verse 13 he goes on to say that he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. And there will be no question of bribery or paying as a reward for them doing that, says the Lord Almighty. Now that's an absolutely unheard of thing. You see what he is meaning in the last phrase of verse 13. He says that they will be set free not for a price or a reward. Now I think you need to go to the east to find out how absolutely astonishing this is. It certainly was true that they would never have set the captives free without getting a price for it. They would need to have paid for it. David Forbes will tell you that in India, you need to pay for everything. There's almost no way in which you can get anything that you want without paying for it. They'll just wait until you discover it. I remember so vividly uh, in the few occasions I've been in the East, uh, finding out that plane seats and and the fact that you'd bought a ticket, that didn't make any difference. When you went to the check-in counter, they say, no sign of your name. You know. Oh, you said, oh, here it is here. Yeah. Uh, now, this is the idea, you see. Not for a price or a reward. What happened then? What happened to the people who were demanding the price or the reward? The Lord dealt with them. That's what he's saying. The Lord said to them, set my people free. And they were released. This is the glorious power of God in salvation. Now there are great lessons from this. Let me just mention them to you. First, God is the Lord of history. Secondly, God is sovereign in our salvation. Thirdly, we should never enter into dispute with him about his works. Elizabeth Elliot was reminding me when she was here of that beautiful passage in Amy Carmichael's book, Rose from Briar, that some of you may know. One of the most beautiful books that Amy Carmichael wrote, and you'll know Elizabeth Elliot as a an expert on Amy Carmichael and she was reminding me of the place where uh, Amy Carmichael in the midst of a very difficult experience received a, a letter uh, from someone and it said when they had gone through trial and tragedy and somebody wrote to them and said however can you explain this and the answer they got back was we need no explanations because we know him. Now that is, that's a reflection of what Isaiah has been saying here. Amy Carmichael says to, to say we needed an explanation 
would suggest we didn't trust him for everything that he was doing. We don't need him to explain. And you know, because his ways are perfect, and because we are the little creatures of his hand, and because his purposes are all good toward us, we don't need God to explain things to us, do we? If, if there's some mystery, if he does explain it, good. But if he doesn't, good. That's what he's saying. We should never enter into dispute with him or question him. And the last thing, we should be able to trust him with an absolute confidence. There is no area of life where you cannot trust such a God as this. He is not only all wise and all love, he is also all powerful and sits on the throne and his children need to learn Trust him utterly. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we bless you that you are such a God as this. We thank you for all the manifestation of your character that you have given to us in Scripture. And we worship you and pray that you will teach us more and more to trust you in every part of our life. Take us this evening in a special way under the shadow of your wing into your care and bless us with a Father's blessing for the Savior's sake. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.